90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, doing pretty good. I've survived the first week of class. <laughs> and I will say, oh, it's, it's so interesting, John. We went out in my field methods class <laughs> and we went outside and I Where? literally, it just at OU, we just went outside. <laughs> and I, we did an I'm or- not familiar <laughs> with this place, but okay. <laughs> On the North Oval of the university. Um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and we just did an orienteering exercise. And these poor students, they haven't been on any field trips because of COVID. They've literally taken most of their geology classes and haven't been outside. And I thought a couple of them were going to cry. They were so excited that we were outside. <laughs> <laughs> like a, a quarter, eh, it was probably a third of the class, thanked me for taking them outside. <laughs> How sad is that? <laughs> well, you know, even after last week's discussion, we got some uh, listener feedback on your a campus bathroom geology <laughs> <laughs> trip that you want to plan and how awesome of an idea that was. Oh, dude, it's I'm so excited for it. Um, I started touring them yesterday, actually. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> um, yes, I appreciated some of that feedback because I think people have given me some um, some tips into some potential sources for some of these rocks. So I have no idea. I don't know where to find it. I don't know if I can like find building things at the university. So we'll see, but um, it'll be fun anyway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> How have you been? Uh, really good. Very busy. Uh, it's been kind of a wild couple weeks here. And with you know COVID still in this area being a very big deal, yeah. Every time I travel, uh, my my wife also has to quarantine for two weeks mm-hmm. yep. <laughs> from her job, and we're having to travel an increasing amount. Mm. So that's been that's been somewhat fun. Oh yeah, I mean she could just make you stay out back, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm waiting for the the cot to show up at the shop. That is correct. <laughs> I don't have a shower there or hot water, so that could be You only shower every week anyway, right? It's no big deal. <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> Anyway. <laughs> yeah. So uh well, we uh we were discussing what we thought we might talk about this week and you had a suggestion that I was somewhat surprised we hadn't done and also <laughs> thought this is a topic where I'm not going to be able to contribute a lot. <laughs> so, did you check to see if we'd done it? <laughs> yeah, and I don't find really much mention at all in show notes. I also have to check and that always cracks me up because I'm surprised we haven't done this as well. And also, I am probably not going to be able to, you know, be that much of a um, expert on this either. So uh, we'll see where we go. (laughs) (laughs) It always does amaze me how much of random things from classes come back. And as we, we prep for the show, though we joke about, you know, Oh, we we don't prepare at all. <laughs> this has resulted in me reading a lot of things in my textbooks that I probably should have read 
when I took the class relevant to that topic. <laughs> Man, I both love and hate that. Like, I love that I can still learn things and get excited about it. And then I hate it because I want to go back to 20-year-old me and be like, come on, just buckle down. <laughs> like, Read the book. Exactly. This stuff's actually super cool. I know the professor has slides that they read word for word <laughs> that will reflect what's on the test, but you should read the book. Yes, just for the sake of the knowledge, but maybe, I don't know. It takes, I think it takes age to get there. I don't know. Maybe it will help somebody that's in class now, or uh, maybe <laughs> through some weird Star Trek time fissure uh, this will be able to get back to our younger selves. Ah, ah. I love that you said Fisher in my head. I said thingy, so that's much better. Because <laughs> I didn't read the book. The astrophysics book, that's on my you got to brush up on your techno babble. That's right. <laughs> I've been reading too many fiction books lately. I have to get back on the sci-fi. <laughs> you so... need to watch some Stargate. Oh, man. Oh, I don't have time for that. <laughs> Battlestar Galactica was my... Um... Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Before we start a real fight. Well, talk... <laughs> speaking of going back in time. Oh, good. Good. <laughs> uh, we're going to talk about the Cambrian explosion and not in the detonation <laughs> sense of the word. <laughs> so the reason I say I'm not an expert on this is because the Cambrian explosion is all about animals. And I'm not a paleontologist. <laughs> But I do teach Earth history, so I kind of have and, to fake it. And you did it. stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> God, I wish. I forgot what hotels are like. Um, <laughs> uh, so I thought we'd talk about it, because obviously I'm going to have to lecture about it, and so this is the way I like to prep for lecture. But also, in the last couple of years, some stuff has come out about this that I find extremely interesting. And so I'll try to uh, bore you to death with it. <laughs> but we should start off at the beginning and uh, this story, as so, so many geology stories do, starts off with a bunch of old English geologists. <laughs> That's right. So the Cambrian period is the beginning of the um, Paleozoic. So if you need to go consult your geologic timescales, go for it. Um, but Adam Zedrick was... You probably noticed that name if you've done any sort of geological history investigations of your own. He named the Cambrian after the word Cambria, which comes from the Latin word for whales. And so that's where in um, on the continent, if you're thinking about the United Kingdom, that's where the best outcrops of that age are. And so often we name the periods and the eras of the geologic timescale after the places that those best rocks were described, right? So the Jurassic is named for Jura in Switzerland. Cambrian, named for Cambria, which is what they used to call whales. Right, and when you say, you know, old, these are like half a billion year old. Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. they're pretty old. And it's funny because you don't half a billion when you're thinking about 4.6 billion doesn't seem very long ago. But when you just think about geology in general, the Cambrian, Cambrian rocks are some of the oldest rocks we look at. So it's crazy to me how much of Earth history we just know nothing about. 
Yeah, I mean, everything past about the last 20% is gone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's real sad, um, <laughs> but true. So the Cambrian, like I said, is the beginning of the Paleozoic, and that word means old life. Mesozoic means middle life. Cenozoic means like current life, something like that. Uh, we'll get there. And it follows the Proterozoic, which means before life. Um, just like you said, the Cambrian started about 541 million years ago, and it is technically last through about 485 million years ago, and that's when the Ordovician starts. Which, yeah, so about half a billion years, but you got to remember that range itself is... Yes. You know, <laughs> Many tens of millions of years. It is not an insignificant chunk of time. <laughs> and it's so weird how, like, the longer you go in geology... It, it <laughs> so back then, half a billion years ago, you're like, oh, yeah, like, the Cambrian, you can talk about it as one solid chunk of time. This happened during the Cambrian, which is, you know, 60, 70, 70 million years. And then right. you, you think about like modern time, and you're like, oh, 70 million years ago, dinosaurs were still here. <laughs> like, yeah. Counting backwards from now, dinosaurs way still here, super doing great. <laughs> so we're taking that entire chunk of time and calling it one point mm -hmm. in geologic history. Yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> but the big deal with the Cambrian is this thing, the Cambrian explosion. Um, nearly all modern animal phyla can be traced all the way back to the Cambrian explosion. And so the explosion is just an explosion of life, of especially diversity of life. Right. So before this, like, Proterozoic means before life, but that's not true. There were things that were alive in the Proterozoic. So the oldest living organisms are these things called stromatolites. They're basically blue-green algae. They're a type of cyanobacteria that are photosynthetic and they're, we keep finding older and older versions of those. So they're, you know, 3.8, 3.5 billion years old. So life has been around, but it's squishy life. <laughs> Ooh, biologists, direct your emails to Shannon. <laughs> hey, no one, no, you can't fight that. <laughs> but so the Cambrian in general is also famous for lager shata. <laughs> Lager I think shata. I had that beer once. <laughs> I knew it. Um, yes, that's not what a lager shot is. It's lager shot. Um, oh, it is going to be the name of the next lager I brew. I most definitely. One hundred percent. Hope that. Let me draw the. I want to draw the, the um, the label for that. Not that you're selling them. <laughs> USDA or whoever's listening. <laughs> <laughs> I think that might fall under ATF. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. I guess so. Well, it depends yeah. on. How good it is, I guess. <laughs> so Fair. we'll get to, we'll get to what that means. Um, but the Cambrian is exciting. There's there's a reason that there is a um, you know a geological time scale break at this time, and lots are happening during that time period. But before we talk about the proliferation of the life, we have to set set the scene, right? Which means we actually get to talk about something that I know is anything about, which is tectonics. <laughs> What is yeah. the, because that's the first thing you always ask geologically is what was the tectonic environment like at the time? And then mm -hmm. you ask, what was the climate like at the time? And then you get down to all the bugs and stuff. Yeah, exactly. See, this is where we're not the people to talk about this, which is why we haven't talked about it. 
but we can scratch the surface a little bit. <laughs> right. So five, 600 million years ago, that, uh, that seems like supercontinent time. Uh, yeah. So, um, I always like to say, what do you guys think of when you think of supercontinents? Everybody's like, Pangea. And it's like, is that the only one? And everybody's like, oh, well, probably not since you're asking that. <laughs> so, which is true. So we've had a bunch of different supercontinents. The whole thing is called the Wilson cycle. And we can do a whole show about that. Um, and so where you build and break down these big supercontinents. And so at the time, we had Panosha which was a supercontinent, and most of the land that we had, which is not as much land as we have now, almost, but not quite, that supercontinent was mostly in the southern hemisphere, which is actually what, like, Panosha means. It means, like, south land. And that was hanging out down at the bottom of the globe, and it started to break apart. This formed during the cryogenian period, hence cryogenian. We'll talk about that in a second. About six, cold. <laughs> it was cold, very cold, <laughs> about 600 million years ago and started and was beginning to break up by the beginning of the Cambrian period. But the cryogenian, just like you said, it was kind of cold. Yeah, so several snowball earth events, not one, several snowball earth events mm -hmm. during this time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, not exactly what you would think of as conducive to... Uh, increasing diversity of life right and it wasn't <laughs> and you do have though this one big supercontinent which i don't really know what that means for what that would do to life uh and then maybe you don't have as much coastal area from it being broken up yeah it is so the position of Pinocha, like you can't tear apart tectonics and climate and i really I'm excited about the way that science is breaking down those like very specific walls and buckets of things because you can't talk about one without the other, the other. And when you have a lot of land in a polar configuration, it makes it much easier to freeze that land. It has to do with the orbital parameters, the way the earth is tilted and all these things come together but it's just simpler to build ice on land than in the ocean. Right. Yeah. So you've got this huge amount of land on the pole. So just like Antarctica. And so you ice it over. And just like you said, that will have implications because not a lot of stuff likes to live when it's really cold. Well, and then you also have all the fun feedbacks that we've talked about of mm -hmm. the albedo of the ice. But... That's an entirely different set of shows, which we have partially yes, done. We have partially done that. <laughs> but that's the tectonic situation going into the Cambrian. So because Pinocha is beginning to break up, you're opening up the Iapetus Ocean. And so if you're, you've heard that word before, you're opening up this big ocean as stuff begins to rift apart. You've got sort of Gondwana and Laurasia are ripped apart. Siberia is its own little continent hanging out by itself. Baltica is its own little continent hanging out by itself at this time with a big ocean in between them. So they start to break up. Okay, great. Very active tectonic period. Ice begins to melt. So the beginning of the Cambrian is pretty cold because you're coming out of this. What's interesting is that um, it was probably a lot like today. 
because there were probably lots of these as it melted. Great. Sea levels rise. But there's still a lot of land in the south, and it's still kind of cold. So you probably get growing and retreating polar ice caps, much like you do today during most of the Cambrian. Right. So and... that situation was similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the actual atmosphere was not very similar. Yeah, right. <laughs> so when you have a very active tectonic system, there's a lot of feedbacks that also go into the atmosphere because our atmospheres, and we have talked about this before, you know, they come from volcanoes. So when you have more volcanoes, you're pumping stuff into the atmosphere and you're changing the chemical composition of our atmosphere. So a bunch of our atmosphere, our first atmosphere came from volcanoes but also as you start to melt that ice you know you've got rising sea levels seas being driven up on land all this stuff and remember those little things i talked about before stromatolites these little cyanobacteria they've been going for a long time three billion years right (laughs) they're cranking out (laughs) oxygen this whole time taking in that sunlight that's exactly right and so they have been pulling down Earth's first, second, third atmosphere. We're kind of on our fourth iteration of atmosphere right now. Um, And it hasn't changed much since the Cambrian. There have been some changes, but overall. So those first atmospheres that came mostly from volcanoes were full of gross stuff, carbon dioxide, all kinds of methane and weird compounds that are terrible. But those little guys have been cranking out oxygen by photosynthesis for 3 billion years. They've drawn down all the carbon dioxide, which also helps to make these snowball earth events, um, out of the atmosphere. And they're cranking in oxygen. But first, got to fill up the ocean with oxygen, because these little guys live in the ocean, before you fill up the atmosphere. And it's about this time where the ocean starts to really get pretty oxygenated. And then we start to oxygenate Earth's atmosphere during this first part of the Paleozoic. And that starts becoming really important for the development of life, as you can imagine, because mm-hmm. now those, those CO2 levels are going down, the oxygen levels are going up, the atmosphere is still a lot of nitrogen, much like it is today. So we're setting up things by warming up, by oxygenating, for there to be this diversity explosion. Now, we have to remember that this diversity explosion is still all in the oceans. Like, the land at this time, there's no plants to speak of. So Right, yeah, it's basically rock. There's, yeah. I mean, the only thing you have is chemical weathering and, like, freeze-thaw cycles to... (laughs) Right, exactly. To do anything. Um, So some of this, like, sort of new stuff is that we think that actually in some of the desert areas... That today, if you go to the desert, sometimes you'll see (laughs) these little signs that say, don't step on me, if you're in a national park. Um, And it's because the crusty desert soil is crusty because there's little bacteria in it. And those bacteria are making like microbial mats out of the desert gross alkaline (laughs) landscape, right? And so they think that there's actually probably a lot of microbial mats that were inland in the desert areas and there were definitely these microbial and algal algal mats 
all around like the intertidal zones. So all around the the little the parts of the ocean very close to the ocean had mats. And actually, it's probably what the bottom of the ocean looked like too. So, so there's still a lot of life. It's just not it <laughs> largely inland. It is rocky masses though. It, right, exactly. So basically the earth's crusty at the start of the Cambrian. <laughs> and this explosion in the ocean. So prior to this we didn't have a lot of preserved life forms in the rocks. It, when we named the Proterozoic, we thought there weren't any things that old, which we now know is not true. Um, but a lot of the things that, well, there's not a lot of things preserved. Because most of the things that were around probably had soft body parts. And that's real hard to, you know, keep around and bury and sediment and preserve it in rock. Yeah, it's like trying to make a fossil from jello. That is exactly what it's like. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so here comes our favorite beer, Lagerstadt. <laughs> and the Cambrian explosion was sort of identified by these hard bodied creatures. So we start to see all these hard bodied fossils. And when this was first found, these were trilobites. That was the main thing that was found. Um, but since we've actually figured out there, the explosion was much more than just trilobites. And so Lagerstadt are um, sedimentary deposits that just have an outstanding preservation of a lot of different fossils. Okay, so that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So also could be, could be beer adjacent, so I like that. 100% beer adjacent. <laughs> Geology, right? Um <laughs> So we had all this algae before, and then we get all these hard-bodied creatures. But what, and this is where the, I'm not going to say arguments, but I'm sure there have been some arguments. I really like to imagine there have been some fisticuffs over this as well. Um, is like, what, what caused the explosion? Like, why, why then? What happened, right? Um, this algae gives way to a bunch of burrowing animals. This is this is a fact we know, okay? Why? Hmm, I don't know. And this is where we get all the fights. But once you have a bunch of animals that are burrowing through what used to be a crusty ocean floor, you really start to change the environment. <laughs> yeah, so you're now getting fluids where they weren't before. Mm-hmm. You're mixing things from down deep up mm-hmm. into that boundary layer. Yeah, exactly. Uh, not to mention, you're you're just modifying the material. You're drastically changing how it weathers, in quotes, because you've got all these little little critters digging. Yeah, and they're gross. Like, all this stuff is worm-like. That's one thing. Like, I just, I have a bearded dragon, like a lizard as a pet, and I just can't give her worms. I can't deal with the worms. I love snakes. I can't handle worms for some reason. So. Most of these look like smaller versions of the the creatures and trimmers. Yeah, exactly. They're terrifying. So you should look these things up. Um, and so when they start burrowing and doing all the stuff John said, they also start to destroy the algae. So the stuff that ate the algae can't really live anymore. All this soft-bodied stuff. But why... Why did we get trilobites, and why did stuff have to grow 
shells. So what does a shell do for an animal? Also a shell's protection. Yeah, I love this. So if you're talking about evolution, why did animals get shells? Well, it's probably because one of those little worms turned to the worm beside it and it took a bite out of it. Right. (laughs) And then that worm that died, (laughs) you know, all the other worms are like, oh, no, (laughs) we better start making these hard parts, right? (laughs) Yeah, you start got to, you know, you got to watch out for Bill. He's... (laughs) I'm just getting a little lippy over there. It's going on a rampage. <laughs> and thus the rise of the arthropods. <laughs> so we get all of these, uh, I mean, like even trilobites, like they're armored. Yeah. And so that's why when we first, like the first talk of the Cambrian explosion, so this is Sedgwick is in like the 1800s, right? And so they're saying, you know, these trilobites are the thing that takes over. Like it's just trilobites. It's this crazy explosion of trilobites. And there are probably a disproportionate amount of trilobites that are preserved in rocks because they are so armored. Like every piece of them is crunchy, right? Yeah. And if you haven't seen a trilobite or don't know what we're talking about, which I can't imagine listening to our nerdy show, you don't know. Um, But look them up. They are killer. They're like little awesome roly-polies of the ocean. That weren't always so little. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah. Um, I remember my Earth history teacher, who was a paleontologist, telling us about like meter-long trilobites, and so we always had these jokes about having our meter-long trilobite that we rode around like a skateboard. I have, I have that perfectly in my mind. I love it so much. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so these huge trilobites, tiny little trilobites. The roly polies of the ocean. But there's a lot of other stuff, too. So like I said, it's not just that. It's a bunch of other arthropods, too. So predation. Oh, God. I mean, well, making shells has impacts on things like carbon balance. But that's beside the point. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, Just wanted to mention that. That's something to think about, about all these things suddenly starting making shells. What are those? They're, They're carbonate. Yeah. So you're so you're exactly right, and this is part of the um, part of the argument comes down to what does the geochemistry of the ocean look like at this time? Because that's where that's where everything's living, right? I mean, there's the atmospheres out there hasn't changed a whole lot, um, but the geochemistry of the ocean is definitely changing. And one of the main ideas behind the fact that the Cambrian explosion happened at all was that there was a huge oxygenation event, bringing oxygen levels up to near modern-day ocean oxygen levels. And that's why everything was able to proliferate. So one thing that doesn't line up here is, okay, we've, we've got these algal mats that are making oxygen. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, they're reproducing and growing, potentially in some semi-exponential form, but they can only live in certain places. Mm-hmm. So why was this suddenly a burst of oxygen? Right. It, exactly. And that's where that's beginning to be debunked. Um, and part of the debunking of that is that if you look at our ocean today and you're looking at the ocean bottom, there are parts of the ocean that have like 0.5% of the oxygen level of all the rest of the ocean. 
So there right. are these small pockets of nearly anoxic conditions. And in those conditions, you still have life. Not as much life, not as diverse life, but there's still life there. And then if you bump that up to like 10%, there's more ecosystem there. And if you bump it up to 20% of like the rest of the ocean oxygen levels, you can get quite a vibrant ecosystem. So probably that's what was happening. It was just this small increase in oxygen, but there's probably a tipping point of oxygen that's needed for this proliferation. And that's probably what we crossed. It probably wasn't like this massive infusion of oxygen from some weird underwater oxygen volcano. (laughs) Well, I mean, and you have to remember too that if you're looking at something that takes 5 million years to happen on a Earth history timescale, it looks like a jump. <laughs> yeah, that is absolutely true. You have to think about your sampling rates. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And so when we have more complete sampling rates, those jumps start to just look like gradual increases. And I think that's, that's kind of where we're at now is okay so maybe there were some places where there were local increases due to something but it was probably more of a gradual increase but it's definitely an increase because of all this photosynthetic stuff happening right um but that'd been happening for a long time so if it's not just oxygen it's it's a combination of all this stuff this is what i love like and we were discussing this before the show about something else entirely you know people take these stances in these hills that they're dying on in science, right? Of like, this is the reason. And generally the answer is a little bit of all the reasons, right? Right. You know, somebody wants to dip their french fries in mayo. Somebody wants to dip them in ketchup. And nobody realizes that you mix them together and you get fry sauce, which is delicious. Exactly right. (laughs) Exactly right. Mayo's the way to go. I'm Canadian. Oh, absolutely. Um, (laughs) So we've got this gradual oxygenation which is a hard word to say, and, and it probably hits this tipping point. Okay, so lots of stuff can live with a little bit more oxygen. Fabulous. And as these grazing styles changed, so as you have diversification in the burrowers, that is what starts to cause predation. So the things that were alive, the jello squishies, were mostly immobile. They were like fans and stuff that lived planted in one place. So you've got all these grazers that are moving around now, and then they start to graze in different ways. And this is a whole a whole section of paleontology. You can be in oh, ichthnophases. And so it's looking at the things that animals leave behind, not fossils, looking at their trackways, so the thing the way they walk, the way they burrow and move. Ichnophases is crazy. <laughs> Yeah, so trace fossils. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So there's a whole bunch of different grazing styles now. Some things make U-shaped burrows. Some things go straight down and come straight back up. Some things branch around in little spirals. Um, They start to proliferate, and somebody bites somebody else, right? Bill's over there chewing on his buddy. They start to make shells. And now you've developed predators, right? And you got a lot of shells, so you got to develop more predators, and so on. Bigger teeth. That's right. Different shells, 
It uh-huh. is it is an arms race. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. Or but teeth race. Oh. <laughs> So uh, this is where we are with this. And so eventually, I mean, the ecosystems can only handle so many predators, right? And that's probably where the explosion part started to slow down. Um, there are also climatic reasons that the, that it started to slow down. But, I mean, really, the ecosystem can only handle so many things. But that's likely those combinations of oxygenation and just simple predation, is what started the Cambrian explosion. Well, and there's all these, you know, we've talked about before, uh, like the predator-prey solutions to differential equations that, mm-hmm. you know, orbit a steady state. Like, if you have something that explodes, like, you're probably going to have an extinction. Yep. And that's exactly what happened. Um, <gasps> yeah. Once you oxygenate the ocean, all the rest of the oxygen starts to leak out into the atmosphere. And as tectonics change... As that state between the photosynthetic organisms and the oceans changed, there's probably some oceanic anoxic events, which have happened numerous times throughout Earth history. And so that definitely kills the things that are happy at the oxygen levels that exist. You, so you drop those oxygen levels, lots of stuff begins to die. By the end of the Cambrian, speciation was outweighed by extinction and it kind of actually rebounded in the Ordovician. There was another sort of Ordovician explosion of life to a much lesser extent um, once those oxygen levels recovered. Yeah. So Cambrian explosion was an exciting time for paleontology mm-hmm. uh, folks. You've got all this diversity, and it really starts paving the way for more complex forms of life that are going to show up uh, and that we know more about just because they're more recent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it was really exciting unless you were that little worm that Bill was chewing on and then, well, yeah, sucks to be you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so there's our non-paleontological take on the Cambrian explosion. <laughs> yes, though I think we're about to move on to talk about another evolutionary explosion. In everybody's favorite segment of the show, <laughs> Fun Paper Friday. Yeah, that was a great segue. I'm super <laughs> impressed. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, I have been so, so ready for this paper from the journal Soft Matter. Uh, it's the Royal Chemistry Society Journal. And uh, all right, so the paper title. Intestines of non-uniform stiffness mold the corners of wombat feces by Yang et al. <laughs> there are a lot of people in this paper. <laughs> and I hope they were all wombat wranglers. <laughs> um, before we even talk about <laughs> this unfortunately named paper, <laughs> there's so many things they could have done with this. I learned a new word in the First six sent- six words of the abstract. All right, go for it. A fossorial. So what is a fossorial? Uh, den-digging organisms. Okay, that makes sense. Yep. <laughs> did you know what that was? I did not. 
I also didn't know that the wombat scientific name is Vombatus ursinus. <laughs> like yes. vampire bear? I don't know. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, yeah, so wombats, right? They're super cute. Uh, weird rear-facing pouches. Uh-huh. Yeah, yep. they're like weird-looking koala bears, I guess, kind of. I yeah. don't know. A little bit like a koala bear yeah. and a javelina or something mixed together. Uh, I've seen koala bear and uh, groundhog. Okay, that's a better one. Yeah, I just really like javelinas. That's a that's a much better thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I love that it says that they're renowned for its cubic feces. <laughs> so when I announced what fun paper we would be doing to my wife, she said, I've always wondered why their poop was Are you cubic. serious? I, so like, she, I never knew. She, <laughs> she, she knew this. Knew. Oh my god! I also received a wombat-related paper earlier this week, and I said, oh, wow. "Did you know that wombats poop in cubes?" <laughs> and I said, "We're talking about it on my podcast." And <laughs> and the response was, "Wow, I'm glad that you're spreading, you know, all this scientific knowledge on your podcast." And I said, "Look." From this small email exchange, are you going to remember the quasi-geostrophic equation we talked about? Or are you going to remember that wombat poop is cube-shaped? You're going to remember that wombat poop is cube-shaped. <laughs> oh, just wait till I get to talking about hoop stress in this. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, which I, I joked I was going to start calling it poop stress after this paper. <sighs> so and four people laughed because that's... <laughs> oh, it, it, it will kill... At the next petrophysical convention. Okay. So. <laughs> uh, there is a sort of pop science article about this that has a bunch of cleverly worded puns in it. Uh, it sure does. And I'm going to admit that that's uh, that and the, <laughs> and the supplemental videos are all that I read because, yeah, it's a mathematical model of poop. That's what this is. It's fantastic. Okay. So. <laughs> Uh, you might say, especially because where the poop comes out is round, just like you and me. <laughs> what? <laughs> and my next question was why, which we'll get to. The why because is spectacular. My, my wife also guessed the correct answer to why. <laughs> oh, nice. Okay. Uh, so I told her she'd missed her calling as a... Clearly. Uh, Poopologist. Fecal, fecal biologist. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Poopologist. So, uh, yeah. They, each wombat can poop up to 100 cubes a day. <laughs> I'm sorry, undergrad that had to figure out that average. <laughs> right. <clears throat> All right. And, yeah, how do you get something to be cubic? Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got to have some differential pressures right yeah you got to compress it but mm -hmm, in two dimensions not but you're well, doing it in a tube two. that's an intestine oh uh, yeah okay so you got that so you got to vary the what it's made out of what the intestines are made out of or at least the the uh structural integrity of the intestines <laughs> Right, and so they did what anybody would do, and they uh, found some wombats that had been uh, roadkilled. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, so, so these 
these little guys and gals had wandered out a little too close to the road and smack, so they were already deceased. Mm-hmm. And uh, they cut them open. And my favorite thing in the paper is figure 1D, <laughs> where it is the intestine of the wombat laid out on a table, cut open, and you can see the progression from like mushy stuff coming out of the stomach all the way to cube. It's kind of impressive. It is. And all right, the, the, the fundamental story was all in the headline of they changed the stiffness of the intestine wall radial or mm-hmm. around its circumference. Right. So one part of the intestine, like if you're looking at it like a compass, you know, maybe the north, south, east, and west have little patches of really stiff intestine material and everything else is really flexible. Mm-hmm. Right. And so as you push something through that, well, the flexible stuff flexes and the not flexible stuff flexes less. Mm-hmm. And you start getting a shape. And it's got like, and obviously it sits there and sort of, oscillates it as it moves it down right and so each of those contractions make it progressively more cubic right yeah so and if you do want to read the paper you can legitimately get it uh by making a free account at the publisher's website mm-hmm. yeah uh, it's only it's get... only issue three of the soft matter journal right <laughs> Um, so anyway, they come up with this mathematical model of how this could work and what would be required uh, of the lateral changes in circumferential stiffness of the intestine mm-hmm. to get square poop. And lo and behold, there's a solution. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and what I love about this is if you look at one of the figures in here, it shows... Uh, sort of like a, if you'd cut the intestine, what is the stiffness change around the circumference? Mm-hmm. Well, I look at that and go, that is a borehole problem. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Correct. Like, that's why I said hoop stress. Uh, oh, like, if you had a borehole and you've got, you know, fractures and mm-hmm. this preferred direction, y- yeah, these are problems that we solve. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and there's a there's a mathematical diagram of that solved cubic pu- poop on there. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. That's it's, hilarious. And they also took, to get the actual stiffness, they took sections of these intestine and put them in a test machine and measured their tensile strength and their stiffness. And there is a video in the supplementary material of a piece <laughs> yeah. of wombat intestine in a test machine. <gasps> the supplementary videos were... <laughs> enlightening <laughs> they were they were pretty interesting yeah there's a bunch of them they're basically poo movies yep <laughs> wombat poo movies <laughs> yeah it's real good yeah <laughs> this is funny we've had lots of pee and poo papers well of course of course but <laughs> this one is i don't know this I didn't. I didn't know so much about this, and it's very interesting. Um, before we get to the the awesome, you know, why why it is, I love that in the pop science article here, the last author who's a, who's being interviewed says, you know, 
this information is not going to replace the way we manufacture plastic. <laughs> Which, I've got a thought on that. But <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> Please do tell. I thought it was really funny, though. <laughs> like, do you know how much of an industry molding is? Well, no. We also talked a little bit about that before the... Uh... Before right, the like show, taking materials and making them into certain shapes is a big deal because everything you buy Has probably was molded. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, especially if it's plastic. And I could see this even in um, food processing and manufacturing. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, do you want to make rectangular tootsie rolls? Like, here's how you do it. Mm. Okay. Uh, I mean, it's maybe not the best example, but I could see a lot of extrusion applications <laughs> using this exact technology. I really appreciate that I can't ever eat a Tootsie Roll now because I'm just going to think about wombat poop. I really appreciate that. Yeah, you're welcome anytime. <laughs> My teeth, thank you. <laughs> so, no, I think there could potentially be some manufacturing applications Especially when you get to something like, uh, okay, yeah, we can always make dyes for stuff. Mm-hmm. But let's say you're doing something on the moon or Mars where you don't want to carry big metal dyes because they're oh, heavy. Yeah. Like, I could see this being a, you know, this thing's like a, <laughs> you just roll it up and throw it in your bag and then whatever material you need to extrude into a rectangular shape to build your little hut or whatever, there it is. Just whip out your wombat intestine and <laughs> get to go. Or could, you, or could you use this for 3D printing? So instead of printing, you know, a ah, squished mm-hmm. thing that's kind of circular, can you actually print a rectangular cross-section? Yeah, there you go. So if anybody starts a business with those ideas, <laughs> uh, you need to create the, the Don't Panic Endowment. Oh, yes, please. Oh, man. <laughs> I love it. This was super interesting (laughs) so then we have to get to that final question which lindy guessed correctly that's awesome of why do they poop squares a key is when he also says that wombats in captivity their feces isn't as cubic as wild ones so wild ones really need to poop squares and I mean, what does deer poop do if they poop on a rock? It just, you know, falls off. But square poop probably stay in yeah. place. Yeah. So wombats use their poop to mark their territory, and they like to mark it on high things like logs and rocks that generally aren't flat. So there they poop go. squares so that their territory markers stay perched. Amazing. Just amazing. Mm-hmm. Are you going to buy Lindy a wombat for getting it right? They're pretty cute. They, they are pretty adorable, but I don't want to clean up square poop. <laughs> Especially a hundred square poops a day. <laughs> oh, this was the best. <laughs> so if, uh, if you've got the next uh, Silicon Valley startup idea <laughs> based on the kinematics and stiffness interactions of circumferentially differentiated intestinal material. <clears throat> Shannon, how can folks send that in? 
Send that directly to John. Uh, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. Um, I'd love to get this started in the Slack chat room. We're on the Software Underground, the Don't Panic channel. And thank you to our Patreon supporters. We'll keep bringing you more poop stories. <laughs> if you would like to support us, you may do so. Patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo. And even though Bill the Worm gets that hungry look in his eye when he hears us say it, until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.